You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Christina Santi. Christina is a writer and senior digital producer for BNC, a broadcast media company seeking to illuminate issues affecting diverse communities across the country and the world. Born to teenage parents and raised in the Bronx, Christina is a first-generation American of Jamaican, Cuban, and Puerto Rican descent who spent her early years living with her grandmother and aunts while her mom went off to college. By the tail end of elementary school, she moved in with her mother, but that was not the only transition that she experienced. Her mom also got her into a school in Manhattan where she was one of only two Black students. Christina didn't have an issue competing academically, but the dynamic amongst her classmates and even teachers drove her to go inward. But it was a school administrator who introduced her to the work of James Baldwin, and it wasn't long before she was devouring literature by Black authors. By high school, she knew she wanted to be a writer, but she entered college with the intent of studying medicine. It wasn't until after she was diagnosed with depression that she came to terms with the fact that writing was the only true place she was happy. She changed her major, and today, Christina is a multimedia journalist whose work centers on advocating for equality and equity for Black people, particularly Black women. And she balances this important work with being a mother who aims to break harmful generational patterns and remaining open and honest about the difficulties in her own journey. So here's her story. Christina, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. You've brought really calm energy to the show, which is great doing these uh, episodes, especially on a Sunday morning, right? It's a sacred time. Um, So I love it when people come in and they feel very centered and grounded. Oh, I did my little ritual. I have my incense burning. I have my tea. I always start my morning the same way. I journal, I read, and I just like sit to myself. And it's literally maybe for those 20 minutes is the only time I have for myself for the entire day. So, you know... I'm going to put a a note on that because I definitely want to talk about morning rituals and the importance of starting your day from a calm space, particularly if that's the only time you have. And I know people struggle with consistency with those types of things, a lot of folks. So I want to talk about how you created that habit for sure. But before we get there, tell me who is Christina Santi? I always have a hard time answering that because I feel like I am so many things to myself and so many other people. But I think um, through my life and my career, I always first and foremost foremost say that I am a Black woman uh, because people look at my name and don't really understand that. Um, I'm a mother. I am a writer. I am a content producer. I am a book lover and I am a lover of all things Black um, across the diaspora. And that also stems from like my childhood and my background. So let's talk about that childhood and background. Since you mentioned that people look at your name and that's not necessarily the first thought that they have, that you are a Black woman. So tell me about your origin story. Um, So I am a first generation American. My mother was born in Jamaica. My father is of Cuban and Puerto Rican descent. I was born in the Bronx. I'm the product of not only immigrant parents, but teenage parents. So I grew up in a house with my entire family. Um, so you, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but typically immigrant families are a community, right? So everyone lives in the same house where my parents' children to come along. 
Um, because I am a product of a teenage pregnancy, I lived with my grandmother and my aunts. My mom went off to college. She had me when she was 16. And then from there, I pretty much grew up in a Jamaican household uh, because of that. So like there was, a, there was a dynamic of who I was at home versus who I was outside with my American friends. And so I think a lot of that fostered into who I became not only as a learner, but also as an adult and the type of stories that I like to tell. So I'm a writer. I focus on writing about Black women's struggles and like how race and gender um, impact a lot of things. So like I write about culture, right? So I might write about, I don't know. So Kendrick is my favorite rapper. So when I look at Kendrick's music, I look at it as, as a space from a Black boy telling a story, but also in the way that I, as a Black girl growing up in a similar environment, I was also impacted by that. And that's pretty much like the startings of it. Uh, I know a lot of people, so I spent a lot of time talking about like Black history and like how we are faced against all these odds and systems that necessarily don't work in our favor and how when we see successful Black people, that is still kind of a function of white supremacy because they're not necessarily talking about the ways in which they got there or the ways in which they're the only person up there. You know what I'm saying? There's hints of it, but people don't focus on that. And I'm very much into language. And I understand that like without the language or the history of the understanding of something, a lot of people are never going to have the words or the knowledge to fight against the systems that affect them. And so um, I always say, like people say, I'm not a product of my environment, but you are. You're either the opposite of it or the same thing. So you're always a product of the things that you experienced. And so I take that and I try to break down a lot of academic language and speak in layman terms to where people can understand it. Because I also feel like a lot of people know things, but they get intimidated when people use big words and buzzwords and things like that. And uh, I know for me, I had that kind of same issue learning. But once I realized that, like, the more I read or the more that I understood that concepts connect to each other, I was able to break down things and give myself grace. So, yeah. So thinking about your parents being teenagers when they had you and, you know, when you hear that story often, um, you may hear that, oh, I grew up in a family, in a household with like all of my family because my parents were young. It's not as often that you hear that a mom was still able to go off to college, right? So were you acutely aware that I have a mom, she's just not here right now? Yeah. So I knew who my mom was. I would actually, she went to Lehigh. So I would actually go spend weekends with her sometimes. Um, or she would come for like major holidays and things like that. So I was always aware uh, of who my mom was. I think I moved in with my mom when I was about eight or nine. I can't remember the exact exact age, but once she graduated and got an established career, then I went to live with her. Um, and we would still, so it was my, um, I have two cousins who I was really close with and we kind of grew up together. So we would still like go back and forth between like my mom's house and their house because, you know, if my mom was working or their mom was working, there still needed to be somebody to take us to school or to watch us um, until we were of age. But no, I was always aware. I don't think now as a mom and becoming a mom in my 30s, I'm more aware and I'm more forgiving for a lot of the things that I thought my mom was doing because maybe she didn't want me, right? Mm. Or I couldn't be with her. Because uh, that was a really tough dynamic, especially when my mom remarried and then had my younger brother. I always felt like I never got this. But looking back on it now, I understood she was doing what was in the best interest of not only herself, but of me, because she needed to, uh, you know, get me in better schools or whatever it may have you. And I think that was the first like real cultural shock I had 
when I moved in with my mom, it was the tail end of elementary school. And somewhere or another, she got me into a school in Manhattan. Um, not sure if she used her work address or what may have you, but it was very much a better public school in a better place. But in that school, I was one of two Black people and the other um, Black child kind of was from that environment, right? So it wasn't the, she's not, uh, she wasn't trucking from the Bronx and having her first real cultural shock. Like, this is the first time I'm around people that don't look like me. Um, This is the first time that, you know, I was given agency, like they went out for lunch, they bought lunch and all that other stuff. And even that, like, Looking back on it now, it's like my mom probably didn't have the $25 she gave me every week, but she found it because she didn't want me to feel left out. And it, it was hard also growing up in a Jamaican household where like necessarily race isn't really talked about as much because there's still that immigrant mentality where like I came here and I did what I had to do. So there really should be no excuse. And I think that's something that me and my mom talk about now, maybe not my entire family, because I think she was unaware of it, that, that that's what she was doing. And like it was different for me because I'm like. You know, you guys moved to the Bronx to a part where people who look like you went and lived. So, you know, y'all work in industries that are typically of immigrant stuff. So like you guys are nurses and all of these things. I'm out in the world trying to be a writer. Um, I'm the only person in these situations that look like me. So it was hard for me to like experience some of the microaggressions. And I think very blatant racism I was experiencing at 11, 12 years old. So one example, and this made me fearful of letting people know I was smart. Right. So like. In elementary school, everyone knew I was smart because it was kind of heralded, like, oh, my God, you're going to make something of yourself, even though that's not literally what they would say. But you could tell it's like you guys treat me different because y'all don't think I'm going to stay here like the rest of these kids. So when I went to uh, middle school, I believe it was a biology test in sixth grade. I got the highest score in the class and a lot of the other kids didn't do very well. Um, And so my teacher was like, oh, you guys look, Christina got the highest score in the test. And um, when we went to gym, we changed for gym, whatever, whatever. I went downstairs and they all lined up. And this is a group of like white and Asian kids. They all lined up and threw basketballs at me. I was like, this is what your people do. Uh, Stop like trying to show out in class or whatever. And I never went home and told my mom that. I think I told my mom that when I was in my 20s um, because I knew that not that she wouldn't have empathy for the situation, but it probably would have been like, I don't send you to school to make friends anyway. Like, that's something that was common in my very Jamaican household. It's like everything is related back to education. Oh, you better know your math the same way you know the song on the radio or, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I think that made me also, like, reclusive in that way. So I would never tell anyone, like, I knew things or, like, I wouldn't openly share things with people because I always thought, you know, like, that put me in my place a little bit. And I have this conversation with my partner a lot, like. I think I changed, but it wasn't because I wanted to be white. I wanted to not go to school and suffer. Like, I loved being a little Black girl. I loved uh, wearing braids. I loved beads. You know, I loved everything that was associated with my culture. But I just wanted to go to school to learn. And that was interfering with that experience for me. And I think that's one of the situations that literally radicalized me. Um, And I get that question a lot because I'm always on Instagram talking about, like, Black people and Blackness. And, like, you know, a lot of the things that you're saying are rooted in this very racist thing, but you don't know that. Uh, And so people always ask me, oh, like, when did I get radicalized? And I think that situation was one of them. But also early on. So my mom and my uncle are the younger of the six children that my grandparents have. And so when they came here, they were young. And I think they were able to um, transition into like their roles better. Right. So it's like the 80s and the 90s and, you know, Black Power and Spike Lee and all this other stuff. So my uncle was very much into like the pro-Black movement. 
he would have me and my cousins listen to Malcolm X sermons and MLK sermons and like memorize them. And he would ask us stuff. And I remember around this time, the Power Rangers were really popular and I had a crush on Tommy. And he was like, hey, it's okay to like this person, but like, that's not who you should end up with. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he looks different than you. He's not going to understand you. And, you know, he was also the uncle like, oh, don't buy her white dolls and all this other stuff. And so like, looking back on all that stuff traces back to who I am as a person and a writer. Because I, I literally will like write about just like Blackness in its totality or like how I understand it. And so that's where we are. So there's so much to unpack there and so much of it resonates <laughs> with my own experience. And and people who listen to the show often will be like, oh, Dee told a similar story about a teacher saying in front of the class that look, look who did the best on the test, right? But thinking about that experience of growing up in a Jamaican household, right? And not only growing up in a Jamaican household, but having a situation where at first, you were not even with your mother full time. Then moving with your mom, having her remarry, have another child, which happens often when a parent has a child early. This experience that you're having at this all white school as well. Um, so it sounds like both in, in home and within cultural environments and, and at school, there's a part of you that had to be repressed, right? In a sense where you were not able to really express what you're feeling and experiencing and thinking and feel safe in that, right? For lack of a better term. Do you feel like you had anywhere to really be your authentic self growing up? In the middle of pages, like I read a lot. I've always read a lot. Like reading was my escape. Um, In that same school environment where I had the um, racist incidents, my vice principal, I want to say, she was a Black woman. She had dreads like down to her ankles. She wore a bunch of bracelets. And um, me and my friends always say we came from uh, Black women that uh, wore many bracelets. But in that experience, she introduced, I was, I think I was 11 or 12. It was seventh grade. And we were reading like, I don't know, The Great Gatsby or something in, in class. And then we had this assignment to like write a paper. Um, and I wrote a paper and I got a C on the paper, but not because it was bad, but because my teacher literally wrote on it oh, you shouldn't be writing things like this. This isn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. And it was literally like, I don't even remember what it was about, but it was like nothing inappropriate. It was just where I was in life, which of course I was probably a little more mature than you know the kids that I went to school with because I had to be. So my, I remember one day I was like, really like, oh my God, like my mom's going to be so mad that I got this C. And the vice principal took me into her room and she spoke to me and she gave me a James Baldwin book. And ever since that very moment, I read a lot, but I was always just like reading. I never really saw myself on the page. Um, And then when my mom saw me reading the James Baldwin book, she gave me um, The Bluest Eye. And from that moment, I just started reading like a lot of Black authors and just soaking it in. And I was always reading, like if anyone couldn't find me, I was either listening to music or reading and they kind of just let me do that. And I think it was because they knew I was escaping stuff, but they also didn't have the words to talk about it, right? In the same way later in my life, when I developed depression and stuff like that, I don't think it was new to any of them. They just didn't have the language to talk about it because they always had to push through to survive. Right. And so that's where I realized, like, OK, words and your understanding of the world and who you are really mean something. And I think that's also when I made the definitive choice to like want to be a writer and write about those things, because I know that even if I'm not a best selling writer, the audience that I would attract would be a younger me. And if I had someone 
when I was going through those things to talk about, talk to me in the way that like James Baldwin or Toni Morrison words touched me, I think I would have been on a better course. Not to say that the course that I'm on is wrong or that I wasn't meant to be here because everything happens for a reason, but I probably would have got here a little faster with a lot less bumps on the road. So let's let's put a, a pin right here around now being able to identify escapism or bouts of depression, all of that. You know, the kids that have come behind us, and they're young adults now, but with access to the internet, more information, I think they are more readily able to identify racist microaggressions. They're not afraid to speak their minds. They're talking about their feelings more. Uh, often they, they can put a name to depressive episodes. But as a result of them, I think being a bit more comfortable expressing their vulnerability, oftentimes they're labeled as soft, right? Let, like, let's, let's be honest. Like these kids are not resilient. They're, they're, they're soft. They have no survival mechanism, et cetera. For you as somebody who grew up in an environment where you couldn't put a name to it and you didn't have the language, do you have empathy for the generation behind you in that way? Or do you align even in, in, in maybe some ways with that opinion that they're a bit softer than we were? I think I'm conflicted on that answer because mm-hmm. I was always labeled as sensitive mm-hmm. uh, or irritable and it was just something to be. So when I see younger folks expressing themselves, I'm kind of proud of them. And I think that that's brave, right? Because they know what is on the tail end of that, right? And I don't necessarily think, and that's also where, so I have a son and that's also kind of where like, there are like hot spots in my family based on that. Cause I want him to be sensitive and I want him to be soft because I want him, people that are aware of their own emotions are typically more empathetic to other people's emotions, even if they cannot relate to them or don't understand where they're coming from, because you probably have been in a situation where nobody else understood you, right? And I so I think that's one of my superpowers. And also one of my weak points is that I'm highly empathetic because I went through so much in my life that I wasn't able to share with anyone. Um, and that is great, but it's also detrimental to me because I've also turned into someone who like over explains or shuts down or is like over helpful. And I, and, and, you know, I don't really, and I work through that in therapy. It's like, I don't value myself in the same way I value others, but that all traces back to that upbringing of like, okay, I never felt like I belonged anywhere or that anybody wanted me. And your feelings are valid, but it's not really almost your reality because as you grow up, you understand like this person did that because of their situation or, you know what I'm saying? Like now I kind of always think about the trauma my mom must've went through and she, she probably wouldn't label it trauma of like, being left in Jamaica when her parents came here, all of them really to make a better life and then coming for them and ripping them from, you know, the, the things that they knew and putting them here. Cause as an immigrant kid in America, even now, like kids are not nice. Right. And as a child, I never thought about that, even though, you know, kids weren't nice to me one cause I was short or one cause I was smart. You know what I'm saying? So like thinking about that frame, it's like, my mom is very intelligent. They, she told me the story just over Thanksgiving about how they put her in ESL or trying mm-hmm. to put in ESL, even though Jamaican people speak English. Like, things like that. It's just like, but had she told me all of these things growing up, I think we would have had a better connection and understanding of stuff. But, you know, you you live and you learn. And those are the generational curses that, you know, while everybody's like, oh, success and a company and money and land. Like, I think I want to focus on, like, my son's traumas being his own and not necessarily the traumas that I didn't heal in myself and passed on to him. That's good. 
That's a word right there. And, you know, I think growing up in Black households where there's this rule in a lot of them that children are seen and not heard. Your job is to go to school. My job is to provide. Your job is to be, to behave. I'm going to put a roof over your head. I think as a result of that, it doesn't often create an environment for safe, healthy, open dialogue. So you have this delayed understanding of who your parents really are. And I think we sort of see the humanity in our parents later because we're sh- we're shielded and sheltered for, from everything. And we're not given the space to kind of talk about things, right? Um, and even in, in age-appropriate language. So I commend you on the way that you're raising your son and also having grown up in a Black household. I know some of the commentary you could potentially hear, right? For, but by just vir- the virtue of like raising him to be sensitive and a feminist and express his emotions and having conversations about things and allowing him to speak his piece. Um, that's not welcomed often, even in like 2021. It's just not. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it, who it was. Maybe it was Joanne Reed uh, made a comment about like, oh, you guys let your kids choose what to eat for dinner. And I was like, I remember I was going back and forth with a bunch of people like, yeah, your child is a person and like (laughs) do within your limits of like allowing them choices. But like, I remember so many times I sat at the dinner table crying for maybe an hour, didn't even eat anything because I didn't like that thing or that thing made my stomach hurt and nobody believed me. And it's like, you're a child, you're going to cook what I eat. But, you know, I'm like, if my child wants grilled cheese and I made spaghetti, I don't see the big deal in that. So a lot of the a lot of the things that I do in terms of like being a mom isn't really welcome uh, or like, so I wrote this whole academic, I'm in the, I'm going to be in an academic journal. And I wrote the whole piece on like, it's about mothering in the age of Black Lives Matter. So I wrote about uh, not spanking my son and like tie that into like all the spankings that I got as a child. And in reality, like, yeah, it didn't really serve the purpose that I think my parents thought it served or the people in my family, because anyone's allowed to beat you at, at that time. Um, because I was like, me and my cousins would still do the things we got spent for. We just would hide it from you. And it wasn't necessarily things that I view as bad, right? So I kind of like talk about like how that kind of is a product of the institution of slavery, right? And how if you look back to um, a lot of African cultures, children were viewed as like deities and gods and blessings. And at the turn of like in America, in order to justify slavery and the murders of Black people and the selling of Black children or whatever, you know, it's y'all don't listen and y'all need to be beat into submission. And it's like, that doesn't really work. And I think it, it produces more violence and uh, a, a fear and intimidation of not speaking to you about my feelings because I think you're going to get mad or you're going to hit me. And so I think one of the biggest joys I have about being a mom is that my son is three. He tells me everything. Like he doesn't distrust me when he breaks something, when he makes a mess. Mommy, I broke this. Mommy, I'm in a mess. Uh, I have a plant upstairs that he ripped up. He came and told me and he was like, I'm sorry, it's going to be okay. And I said, it is going to be okay because I can get another plant. But you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't break my things and things like that. So I think that open communication with him, uh, I'm really proud of, uh, because I didn't have it. And I, you know, your goal as a parent is always to provide something you didn't have in your childhood to your kids. And so I'm very um, excited to see where, who he develops into because he can communicate in that way. And do you feel trepidation weaving in your own personal experience to your public opinions and public writings about things, given we also are very insular in our culture and that you don't discuss certain things 
outside of the household. So does that get, ever give you pause as you work to be your authentic self as a writer? It only gives me pause, not with strangers, but like I don't let my own family read my writing. So if I know it's going to be somewhere that they all can read, I kind of figure out how to tell the story that I want to tell without being offensive or I'll talk to them first. Like um, with the spanking story, none of them are going to be able to read it unless they get the academic journal. But I actually talked to my mom and my aunts about it before I wrote it. Um, because there's also the two truths type of thing. It's like what I experienced may not have been your intent or what you th- thought I would perceive it as. So um, it's hard. I think my mom is pretty much open to the things I write. I just think, I know, you know, we have the conversations of like, she did the best she could and all those things now. So it it's kind of like a full circular moment. But yeah, no, in terms of like strangers reading my stuff, I have no trepidations about that. I think my biggest critic is myself. So mm. once I get it out in the world, then it's like, okay, whatever. But it, t- it takes me a lot to not only write the thing and research and make sure that all my things are aligned, but to also like get it down on the paper. Like mm-hmm. I'll go through drafts and drafts and like, this is not it. Or, you know, like that um, imposter syndrome that I'm continually fighting against because as you've mentioned before, I was in spaces I never thought I belonged in or like that I didn't feel safe in. So now that I've worked yet where I'm at, I still doubt myself and it takes a lot. Um, I, I, and I, and I share that like on my social media or any public forum that I'm on, I always talk about like, Hey, today wasn't a good day for me. Cause I noticed like when I post like, Oh, this article is getting published or like all these good things. People are always like, Oh my God, how do you balance it all? And I'm like, if you only knew I'm like two snaps away from just like running away or like whatever, there's so much work that I do to just exist. And I don't know if people understand that, especially as a black person, but especially as a black woman. Right. I come into a room with all of my identities connected. And we're definitely going to talk about intersectionality um, and how that plays into your work and the spaces that you're in. But taking it back to the origins of your career, at what age did you know being a writer is the only career for me? I think I knew in high school, maybe 10th grade. but. Um, I didn't pursue it until I think in my twenties because writing wasn't, you know, my parents didn't come to America for me to be a writer. And and I think I internalized that like, okay, I'm good at science. I'll be a doctor or whatever. And then, um, when I was in college, I was just like really depressed. I wasn't happy. It was a mix of like home being homesick, um, just like discovering that I had depression and not knowing how to deal with it and a lot of other things that I was going through. And I think that everybody kind of goes through, Um, but I just wasn't happy. And then it was like, okay, if I can do all of this, if I can sit here and get a freaking B minus in organic chemistry and I can do all these things to make my mom happy, I'm just going to do the writing thing. Cause even if I make her happy, I don't know that I'm going to exist long enough to do anything with it. I wasn't useful to myself. So that's when I first started going to therapy. And then I think I got the courage to be like, okay, Christina, you know, you want to be a culture writer. You know, you want to work within the hip hop industry. I got an internship. Um, I went back to school, uh, majored in journalism. And I just started doing what brought me joy, even if it was for moments, because I still think I was like resistant to understanding the depths of my depression. So like, even though I was in therapy, I probably should have been on medication too. And, you know, I, I, I found vices that, 
did stuff for me. But like the only true place I was ever happy was like writing about stuff. And so I did that and I did it a lot until I couldn't do it. Um, I had a really bad depressive episode uh, where I had to check myself into a psych ward. And, you know, and then I think there for me, it was like, okay, I can't continue living like this. And so then I got on meds. I did what I had to do. Uh, I found a job that I thought would be okay, but then that turned into a whole bunch of other stuff. But then I just continued to write. I ghost wrote. I did a bunch of stuff within the writing field. And then, and I guess the bad experience at the job I was at pushed me to be like, okay, if I'm a woman in this space and I'm already working in a male dominated industry that I know other women are having this experience, but in all the women I've spoke to, no one has said anything. And so that for me was like, you know, um, I believe it was Audrey Lord that said, you know, your silence will kill you or whatever. That's when I was like, okay, this is what I want to write about. And I don't care who I, who gets mad, but I think other women, especially women who look like me need to understand, like you are the powerful being in society, right? Like the woman is the backbone of society, no matter how we're really treated. And we need to know that. And we need to make decisions based on that and not feel guilty. And I think that's also why kind of like the, for the for the past few months, Jasmine Sullivan's Whole Tales has been like my favorite album, not because it's raunchy or anything, but because she's speaking about it's OK to behave how you want to behave as long as you're not harming people. Um, and in the same way, men are not shamed for that. I don't think you should be shamed. And I think a lot of our issues as women come from that idea that like we are different than men. And like these are the ideals and standards that we have to uphold in order to be perceived as good women. And then it gets a little more messy when you put in the intersectionality of it. Cause I don't think, and I don't, I don't think that there's a gender war specifically. And I can only speak about, you know, my experience as a black woman and the experience I have with other black men, but I don't think black men separate what happens outside of the home to them to what happens inside of the home. So like, for example, a lot of people keep posting on social media, Oh, a black man can never be unconditionally loved or all this other stuff. And I'm like, it's not true because, you know, uh, they have moms and I'm talking in a collective sense. I'm not talking about mm-hmm. singular things and, you know, a lot, you know what I'm saying? And the way that they are raised is to be kings and, and all these other stuff, which is nothing wrong with that. But, you know, as a, as a woman or as a girl, you, you're not raised in the same way. Right. And so there's this funny, t- it's not funny, but there's this tweet that I had saved that said, uh, People say raising boys is easy because they don't raise them at all. And I thought that was so funny because I was like, it's true, but you can't really say that. Like, even if I look at my uh, the way that I was raised versus the way that my male cousins or my brothers were raised, Mm -hmm. like I was doing laundry at eight. I was cleaning. I was doing things for them. You know what I'm saying? Like, even in my relationship, it's like, oh, share your partner a plate or do all this other stuff. And I'm like, he has hands like, mm-hmm. like, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like things like that. It's like they don't see that. And I get it. We're all fighting against racism. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, society, in society, that hierarchy is still man, woman. And because we are black women, we're kind of invisible in that sense. And I don't think people see it. And then when I bring it up and talk about it, it's like, oh, you're a Debbie Downer. You don't want to be happy. But it's like. You're telling me to be happy with scrapes of something mm-hmm. and when I have to work with my entire being in existence to even get the things that I want. I get erased. I get ignored. You know what I'm it, It's 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 interesting. It's like it's there, but nobody wants to talk about it. And when you talk about it, well, you're disrupting the system. And maybe we should be disrupting the system because it shouldn't be like this. Somebody imagined the world to exist this way. 
And we're just riding with it, even though it doesn't fit for everyone. It is one box for one type of people. And that type of person is usually white, male, rich. And, you know, you're wrong for, for, for being upset about that. And I have this perfect example. And, 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 I, and I think it only kind of happens to Black women in that very precise thing. So when Kanye was on Drink Champs and he made the comment about like, oh, we should own stocks and lands and blah, 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 blah. But we own braids. Like, that's what we own. I was like, ooh, like I got really upset at that comment because mm-hmm. it's like not when you're married to someone who credited her braids to another white woman, which she clearly copied off of in that moment when it was who was doing it, it was Solange and Beyonce in the right. very specific style. But she credited it to Bo Derek or like everything that they were doing at that moment to me was a, like, you know, it was cosplaying black women. But black women don't get the credit for that. But it's like you're not talking about all the ways in which if we don't have all those other things. Yeah, I want ownership of my cultural my cultural creations. Right. Um, And that was like the same weekend. The Harder They Fall came out and there were so many um, black people saying they didn't know that there were black cowboys. And me as someone who's like who reads a lot, who knew that it's like it's not really the fault of the person. It's really the fault of the system. And Kanye using his platform to talk about that, but not also being acutely aware of the history that got Black people to where they are and why we're fighting for the things that we're fighting for. To me, it's just like you are holding up the same system that you're trying to critique and you don't even see that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, Bell Hooks calls it like a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchy um, society or whatever. And it's like, unless you're a Black or brown woman, I don't think people see the ways in which all of those things truncate your existence yes so to be mad at me because I want ownership of braids yeah because in a hundred years after all of these white women have said this thing we're going to be erased in the same way through centuries Jesus has become white and representation might not matter for you as a 40 year old adult but it matters to a three-year-old and a five-year-old right uh the things that they see is what they're going to know that they can become or push past Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's why it's important for us to stake ownership and kind of gatekeep a little bit. Uh, you know, pop culture as it exists now exists on the back of black and brown women and LGBT and the LGBTQ community. And if you look at who gets the rankings for that, or like even the conversation about Little Nas X, it's like, but he literally is a product of like what came out of ballrooms and mm-hmm. you know, black hair salons and all that other stuff. But you guys want to uphold, you know, heteronormative behavior and think something's wrong with a young man finding himself and his love life in the public eye. But in the same regard, you're not mad when Britney Spears and Madonna kissed or you're not mad when Beyonce's giving a lap dance in a performance, but you're mad that this young man's doing it. And I think that is also the the dichotomy of like what I'm talking about in terms of gender and like mm-hmm. and like how that became our problem when it wasn't our problem, right? Like you go back to indigenous times or back to Africa, like two-spirited people existed, you know, um, the, what I guess now would be like the trans people were the priests and the priestesses and the, you know, and it's just like, there was space for all of that before. So what took that space away from you for you to say that like, this is wrong. And even if you feel that it's wrong, why are you trampling on someone else's existence? Like, it's not like they're a serial killer. It's not like, you know, they're harming you in any way but you believe that they're harming your children when you should be the ones to tell your kids and have those conversations, but you're not. And, mm-hmm. and that's where it comes in. And that's why I always look at it like, well, I safeguard my son from certain stuff, but I do have a conversation with him. Uh, like he came home and asked me 
if if uh, if I was a woman and or if mommies were women. And I said, yeah, I'm your mom and I'm a woman, but not all mommies are women. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, OK. And that's all. I didn't have to get into the trans conversation or whatever. You ask the question, I let him know because there's kids out of school who have two moms or, you know, and it's just like, I don't want him to be like, well, your mommy's supposed to be a woman, you know, like, cause kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. I feel like I went on a long tangent there, but no, no, it's good. And, you know, talking about the erasure of black women also for me, what's like heavily related to that is dismissive being dismissive, dismissive of us knowing our worth and what we deserve. Like I saw a thread on Twitter the other day that said, you know, black women, it's perfectly, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's perfectly okay to say, you're not doing enough for me and I'm worth more than this in any relationship, professional, personal, what have you. I'll save that tweet too. Yes. And the thread underneath, you know, sometimes I avoid the the comments and the replies because it can be a lot and it can be infuriating. Um, But it was interesting to me, the folks that took the approach to basically say black women, are choosing not to be happy and are choosing to be alone by by raising a standard. So it's almost this idea, back to what you were saying, about crumbs, right? How dare you reject the crumbs? Because it's better than nothing. And I don't understand why we as, um, as Black women are expected to accept and cherish the bare minimum in a way that no other segment of the population is expected to. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot as well. And I don't know, it's so much of like, we've been conditioned to be that way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's kind of like Harold a little bit, like Nikki Giovanni, and I can't remember the quote was like, uh, we got rotten peaches, we made peach cobbler, we got that, you know, we made chitlins and all of that is cool. And and, and I think that's something to be, um, to revere, right? Like, Black people make everything fire, like through our struggles, through our poverty, through everything. Like we find joy and I get it. Joy is resistance. But at some point, the joy shouldn't just come on the end of like trying to survive your struggle. And that has been what black women have been doing in America specifically for hundreds of years. Like we've raised everyone else's kids, you know what I'm saying? And all that other stuff. And it's just like, well, at least you're not doing that now. Like, I remember the job I was talking about that I hated before my boss came to me and he's in a, in a, in a racial relationship. And he read some book, some, I don't remember what it was, but they were talking about how like to be alive in America is so amazing now because interracial marriage is good. And the violence that we were experiencing before is not the same. And I was like, well, I don't agree with that because I can't go to sleep at night knowing that my partner and my son are going to come home and they're not going to die for anything, probably besides the fact that they're black. So I don't agree with that. And he literally was like, no, I, I wouldn't be able to have a family if America was the way that it was. And I was like, you would have been able to have a family because you, you would have been sleeping with a slave probably and having babies and still having your wife at home. So don't act like the world has changed much for you. But in the same way that there's been little progression for for people who look like me, that that little bit is not enough. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have to be worried about, you know, having to talk to my son eventually about how to interact with the police or not letting him play with guns and things like that. It's like that's not the same. And that those are the arguments that I kind of would always have in college with um, my non-black friends is like, you guys get to riot when your sports team loses. There's never an instance that it's OK for me to be angry. 
when I go outside. There's never an instance where that's okay. And even the even my anger is cause for my death. And anger is a human emotion. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's strange in that sense. And I and I think it it's good that I'm so self-aware, but I really can't ever enjoy anything. That was also something that was happening on like, I don't know if it was Twitter or Instagram, where somebody was like, oh, I don't want to talk about colonialism right now. It's somebody's birthday or we're at a birthday dinner or something, whatever it said. And it was so funny because my friend sent it to me. I was like, see, Christina. And I was like, I get it. But like, it was my birthday dinner and I wanted to talk about it. But, you know, it's just like, I try so hard to enjoy things, but I I can't all the time. Um, Or even when I'm enjoying things, I think because I'm so vocal about people's struggles, people try to like knock that down from me. So like, Mm -hmm. I love Adele. I call her my white queen. So <laughs> I was listening to Adele's album and I'm just posting about it like, oh, my God. And somebody was like, oh, why are you promoting Adele when there's this black artist on Instagram saying that Adele stole her concept or whatever? And I was like, I hadn't seen that. And thank you for bringing it to my attention. I will go look into it. But right now I'm just like literally enjoying that there's this 33 year old woman who released an album talking about being a mom and like deciding when to leave a relationship and all the things that affect her life because nobody really makes music like that right now. Everybody's making it. And I want to grow with the artists that I listen to. Um, so it was it, things like that. Or like, even when I, so, and I think it, it gets harder for me. Um, and we could talk about that in terms of like patriarchy is that, so my partner is like, uh, I guess he has like a lot of so- social currency. He has his own businesses. We have a business together. He does fashion and things like that. And no matter what I post, I can post something else. I can post like I'm reading something or like I post my kid. Everyone will be like, oh, you're so lucky to be with this person. And I'm like, but do you do you all go to him when he posts and say, oh, he's so lucky to be with me? Probably not. Uh, You know what I'm saying? So it's just like it's strange. But then when I call that out, it's like, oh, but you didn't have to say that. I was just giving a compliment. But you were giving a compliment to him. Mm -hmm. Like I remember someone who follows me commented when I posted about my partner. I was like, oh, your, 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 your dating resume is pretty fire. Cause all of the people who I know that you've dated have become something. And I said, so wouldn't that tell you that I'm fire? Mm. He, was like, he was like, what? I was like, yeah, you're, you really just like complimented two different men based on me dating them, but not me. It's very strange. And then he was like, oh, I can't tell you anything. And I was like, I'm just pointing it out to you. Like, maybe this works somewhere else. But like, that was kind of an offhand compliment. But yeah. <laughs> those are that the- is crazy. Yeah, that's a bit those nuts. <laughs> and then like, anytime I post about like Black women or whatever, there's always the comments or like the anger or like, and I'm just like, but why do you all follow me? If it, if nothing more than to get agitated by the things that I say, because it's not like the things that I'm saying are wrong. Or if you don't agree with them, there's space to have the conversation, but nobody really wants to have the conversation. And that is what I find interesting is like, I'm in a realm of like hate culture. Um, mm-hmm. And and sometimes I want to stop sharing and stop writing certain stuff. But in the midst of the comments about, oh, that's not true. Or why do you believe that or men don't do that? There's always the one person who's like, thank you for this thing that you wrote because it made me go to therapy or thank you for being honest about your depression journey because now I'm going to go and do this. You know what I'm saying? Or thank you for being honest about how hard it is to be a mom because maybe now I don't know if I want to be a mom right now or I should wait to be a mom. And I'm like, and those are the people that I do the thing for. And I always have to like get out of that noise. And I think people, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of empathy. 
I think that as someone who also deals with depression and anxiety, it's hard for me to even get out my own dark clouds. So when other people are doing that and it's racist stuff, like when I worked at Ebony and I would write about certain stuff, like the amount of racism that would come in my comments and my DMs and my emails, it's just like, I got out of this cloud, now I have to get out of this one. And I think that's what I'm saying is like, people are not empathetic to that. And they think that like, oh, this is a compliment or this is a thing. Like it takes a lot for me to even share the things that I share. And I don't even share the totality of stuff because I do feel like we're too exposed on um, social media and there's things that shouldn't be shared. But yeah, and I think that people are not empathetic to that. And then I get it, like it, it could be a singular experience, but like there's billions of people in the world. That th- and, and this also goes to like ideas and like, thoughts. It's like, you're, you're not the only person experiencing something or thinking the same thing. So knowing that you do deal with depression and anxiety, you are not only a writer, which invites criticism in people's opinions, but you're writing uh, about things that really are triggering, right? And the more aware you are and the more informed you are, to your point, it's very hard to move through the world on a day-to-day basis without just taking note of things in a way that other people you know, would not. So what has really driven you to lean into a career and a subcategory within a career that can really trigger the challenges that you already have? Just feels like I'm meant to do it, honestly. And I have that conversation a lot in therapy too. It's just like no one else is kind of doing it to that degree. Like, mm-hmm. Um, well, within the circles that I'm in and I feel like as much as it triggers me, it also is therapeutic for me to share these things. I don't think everything should exist behind a veil. I think that the sooner you know things, the better it is for you to heal, the better it is for you to address it, the better it is for you to inform other people how you want to be loved or seen or treated. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's pretty much just it. It's just like it, when I'm not doing it, I feel worse. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things I've learned in my healing is to acknowledge how I'm feeling and that feelings are fleeting. Um, but when I'm not writing and I'm not telling black stories and I'm not speaking about what it means to be a black woman, I don't feel whole. So do you think that, you know, you, you mentioned people being overexposed on social media and also everybody has an opinion online, like Twitter fingers is a very real thing. Um, so do you think that as we've become more exposed in terms of like identifying a very flawed system, um, the the reaction when someone says something racist or white supremacy, white supremacy is on display is can be swift online, very mm-hmm. swift, right? So do you think even though we're overexposed that there is a benefit to how plugged in we're in online given the fever pitch that can be reached sometimes when we're talking about challenges, racism, social inequality, et cetera? I think there is a benefit, right? Because the things that I'm speaking about and the injustices that Black people specifically, and that's also an issue, it's like when I talk about Black people, people think I care about no one else, but, but these are things we've been experiencing forever. What social media did for our plight is kind of like make it visible to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there, there is that benefit, right? Like I do feel like, unfortunately, it's still not all up to social media. We still kind of have to, um, risk our bodies and our livelihood to get change. But I think social media has helped that a little more, but, um, 
I don't know. I think it's a double-edged sword because you also, as a person, are curating the things that you see. So I feel like each person also has a responsibility to do that. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I don't see. I, I am the queen of blocking people. I tell everyone cancel culture is real in my house. Like, there's no coming back from certain things for me, especially when you disparage or disrespect Black people or Black women. Like, I know that we helped you get rich. I'm not going to support you anymore. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. But I also realize that I'm an outlier in that sense. I don't have the need. And maybe because I was so isolated as a child, I don't have a need to fit in with groups or anything like that. So I, I honestly feel like however I feel and I'm insular in that way is, is how it's going to exist in my household. Um, and there's always room for conversation. Like me and my partner get into debates, debates all the time because we don't share the same views. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we'll buy Kanye products and Yeezys and he still listens to Kanye music. And we have that debate and it's just like, okay, you can listen to it. Just make sure it's not playing on every Alexa um, in the house. Go listen to it in the living room or wherever. And, and 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 I think that's what people don't also understand about me. I have these very strong, radical opinions, but I don't expect you to have them, which is also interesting, right? So so I read all the time and people are always wanting to ask me stuff and ask me my opinions. And I'll usually be like, oh, well, you could read this book or you can read this. Uh, and they get offended by that. And they think that I'm some type of elitist. Like, And I'm like, no, because I know my experiences, your experiences that lead you to the world are how you develop your opinions. My opinion might not be the opinion you get from reading the thing that I read that got me here or living the, the life that I led to get here. Um, mm-hmm. And so, the, and it's weird in that sense, but I think that's just life. And I'm okay with being by myself, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and existing in the in the world that I exist in. Uh, that's also part of the fact that like, I'm my empath nature is like, when things are happening, I also absorb that. So I've learned to like, distance myself and be available when I can be available to people. And when I'm not available to people, I usually am sharing things that could be a resource. Mm -hmm. So this question may be a bit controversial, um, but do you feel like you're still on an island working in Black-centered media? Because I, I think we understand now again, because of online and social media and people being very open about things that you can work for uh, a company that's targeting a black audience and speaking to black issues. And it's been commercialized to a a sense or to an extent that it really is sanitized, right. To satisfy owners, investors, general media, or what have you. Uh, so looking at your career and some of the, the places that you've worked and where you work now, do you feel like your ideas that may be seen as radical in some circles are embraced or do you still feel like, okay, no, I'm, I'm still a lone soldier in this. I think it depends on the day. Um, mm-hmm. Currently where I work, I don't necessarily always feel like I'm on an island because people listen. Mm-hmm. When I speak. That's something that wasn't happening before. So my experience as a black woman is something that they want to hear about and how that intersects with like telling the news or targeting specifically Black people. That hasn't happened in my career thus far. But again, I still work for an institution. So it's still an institution uh, with all of the goals and like mission statements. You know, I think I'm very much anti-institution. So and then that becomes interesting because I'm in grad school. Right. And (laughs) I'm doing all these things, but I'm not necessarily doing it because I want to do it. It's because I know I have to do it to get where I want to be uh, in my career, especially as a black woman. Um, 
which is also interesting. But yeah, because I'm in a cohort where I don't know if there's many Black, other Black, like, women. There are other Black people, but they're not specifically women. And so, like, when I'm workshopping my thesis or I'm workshopping this thing that I'm writing, you know, a lot of the comments that I get oh, who's your intended audience? And oh, this doesn't make sense. You should stop here and explain this. And I'm like, the the intended audience isn't you. So the fact that you need the explanation, I know that the Black girl down the hall is not going to need me to explain uh, the significance of me focusing in on the fact that this person or this character is wearing bamboo earrings or you know what I mean? And so that's been another journey that's been hard, deciding to go to grad school because I want to be a professor in the midst of a pandemic while being a mom and working from home. And like, everyone's talking about diversity and inclusion and equity, but like, I still feel like I'm on an island in all of these institutions because your idea of diversity and equity and inclusion is like, let the black girl lead that. And there you go, you hit all those bullet points, but it's just like, but you're not paying me more money to be on your DEI team. You're not paying me, you know what I'm saying? And then it's just like, in grad school specifically, uh, I recently sent an email to one of my professors like, hey, you know, I can't make it to class because I have to do something for work, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they assigned me an, an additional assignment after I said, hey, I have all these things going on. I'm going to miss class. But I had already done my paper. And then because I missed class, I got additional assignment. And so I sent an email and I'm like, you know, you guys talk about like diversity and all this other stuff. But where's the space for the working class? mother in this school that you know is a is 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 supposed to be a resource for me to get to the next step in my career and unfortunately I'm not from a family where I can go to grad school and not have a job like even that was like challenging for me um going to school remotely a lot of my classes were in the middle of the day so I had to figure out how to one go to class and also still work so that I can pay to go to class or like I got a scholarship but I could only get the scholarship if if I was a full-time student Mm. So not only am I a full-time worker and I pretty much work 14 to 15 hours a day because I work in the news industry. I have to go to school in the middle of the, all of that full-time. So I'm taking three classes with all of these demands, but then I still have to be a mom. And um, and I'm just like, you know, it, it, it's, it's a strange place to be in, but I know I need to be here in order to be able to reap the benefits of everything that I want to do. But it's a struggle. and 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 so... I, I like to be honest about that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, and people give me affirmation and reassurance and tell me, oh, I'm so inspiring. You know, I don't know how I balance it. I, I think that is also a, a product of like being the eldest daughter of an immigrant family is like, I just always have to keep going. I have to be productive or I can't really sit with myself or I feel mm-hmm. like I'm failing. And that was interesting too. Um, I recently wanted to get back on... Um, my um, depression medication because I was just like feeling so overwhelmed. And my doctor was like, this is the only white doctor that I have. And I swiftly was like, okay, time to find a new doctor. But (laughs) he was like, but there's a difference between feeling overwhelmed and failing and being overwhelmed and being successful. And you're the latter. And I was like, so I should feel like this because I'm becoming something or you feel like I'm becoming something very strange. And I was just like, OK, I'll just guess I'll wait till my therapist gets to that so she can prescribe me the meds. But in that moment, I was like, if I go home and hurt myself or I die, you know, what I'm saying because I'm expressing to you this thing, but you're not helping me. Mm hmm. What does that mean for other women who don't or aren't able to know that they're about to be depressed again or going through all these things that are triggering their depression? Like, 
I remember at the height of the pandemic when we were having conversations and everyone was talking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and not even Breonna Taylor as much. I would have to turn off my Zoom camera in class and go cry because it was mm-hmm. just like, you guys are talking about your allies and you're all this fixed, but like the school of thought that you're sharing isn't far a far cry from the pitchforks and the burning of crosses, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like to to read something and not understand it or to make comments about the writing or like, it was just, it was just a lot for me. And, and, and then, so like when people would say, oh, that's inspiring. And I'm like, I spent an hour in class with my camera off, right? Mm. Or I had to explain to my professor that their no cam- their camera on policy was not something that I felt comfortable doing because I have a toddler who might take his pull up off and run around. Like, you know, just certain things that, but at the same time, I'm in a class where, you know, my non-Black, um, colleagues might be laying in bed during class and I'm like I would never have the space to do that or feel (laughs) never ever 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 like and I remember specifically this is when I was just like okay maybe I shouldn't do this but there was a I don't really like the term people of color it's like I feel like it doesn't get to the essence of like the black experience um Mm -hmm. so there were it was another writing class that I was in and um Someone had, it's like peer review. So like you submit your work and then everyone in the class writes comments and it's a workshop class and tells you what you should change or what you should strengthen or take out. And so there was a um, woman, she identified as a woman of color. Uh, um, She wrote something and it was confusing. Um, And another person asked her, uh, okay, maybe you should flesh this out because it seemed like English isn't your first language, right? And okay, that's offensive, right? Cool, got it. Another person took it upon themselves. And then um, there was a mistake made in, like geographically with like uh, something in Afghanistan or Pakistan or whatever. So another person took it upon themselves to send, um, and this was a Middle Eastern woman, to send an email to the whole class, calling the whole class racist and mm. how her experience at this school. And it was just the most disgusting email. Her anger was seeding through the page. She said to everybody in the class about the professor calling us racist and Americans are this and that. And we need to think about all these things and being a foreign student at this place. And I was like, what? And that was the first instance where I was like, okay, I'm going to say something. So I sent the email to the professor and I was like, this is just like uncomfortable. Like, even if she felt like this, there was a way to go about it. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 um, and I remember I called my mom crying just at the audacity of like, yo, I'm struggling to even get these words on this paper for this class because nobody understands what I'm writing about. Like, and at that time I was writing about, um, the influx of like the performance, the performance, the performative nature of like all the magazine covers featuring mm-hmm. black people during that time. And like working in the industry, I know that like, if I pitch a story, it kind of has to be about black struggle, like me pitching that. And then this is why I love Issa Rae pitching a story. Like that's just about black woman, joy and friendship and, and all that other stuff. It's just like, eh, could you tell us about how you felt when this thing happened or whatever? Um, and so I was like for her and not to say that, she was wrong in her feelings, but for her to send that email, that intimidating email, and to uh, uh, use her her anger as currency to get what she wanted, because she was just mad that people were critiquing her work. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? 
wasn't because if it was anything else, I don't think she would have sent the email. And 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 I was just like, I could never, you know what I mean? And I guess the professor was like, I, I guess she had a talk with her, but she she left the class. But then even after that, like the other black people in the class were kind of asking me how I felt about it. And I thought that was strange. Like, and me and they because they were like, oh, you know, you seem really angry about it. I said, yeah, because what? Like, I would never, none of us would ever do it. So why do you think, oh, because you know her and she, that's not what she meant, but that's what she did. And that's what I'm talking about, about people giving like, you know, people who are not dark skinned the benefit of the doubt or like giving space for their, their feelings, especially their anger and sadness. I, I don't ever get that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I do try to get it, it's met with like, oh, well, you should be okay. Like, oh, that's life. Right. And, you know, so thinking about the stress of school, the balance of trying to go to school full-time in a system, an institution that's not really set up for where you're situated in your personal professional life, the work that you do um, as a journalist as well, and being a mom and being partnered. I want to take it back to where we started in this conversation around your morning routine. So I think a lot of people know the value of taking that time in the morning. Some people write in their gratitude journal, other people review affirmations, other people meditate, some people make tea, some people make a smoothie. But no matter you know what they do, I think, let me just say this, I think some of it is performative for the internet. Like I, I sometimes wonder, like, are you really doing all these things every single day? Um, but as someone who has found a routine that works for you within uh, like 20 minutes, how did you develop this as a habit? Especially when you're probably sleep deprived and it may feel better to just say, I'm going to take these extra 20 minutes to sleep versus doing these things. So I have insomnia. Um, mm. so that's first and foremost, uh, partially probably because of my anxiety, but also I think it runs in my family the same way that depression does. Um, but um, and that's weird because we had that conversation at like Thanksgiving and my cousin was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. And then everybody was like, we're all on antidepressants. <laughs> so I think that's wow. Weird. But uh, but imagine she probably would have gotten on them quicker. If she had had the conversation before Thanksgiving. But um, number one, I have insomnia. Um, and so I would be up anyway. Um, but before I had a morning routine. Uh, all of the troubles from the night before would follow me throughout the day and I would just feel really crappy. And I feel crappy a lot of the times throughout the day because a lot of things trigger my stress and anxiety. But starting the day off with a routine has helped me to mitigate some of that and also to realize, okay, this thing right here is making me super anxious. Let me just focus in on that. Um, So in the morning, and I also don't share it on social media. Cause I'm very big on the things that I try not to share things unless I've already accomplished them because I understand that like evil eye nature of like, that's the one thing I think that superstition, the West Indian superstition is one thing I will never get rid of. But um, I was able to develop it because if I didn't have it, I wouldn't be able to do half the things that I do. Um, mm-hmm. so I make tea. I light incense. I meditate. And then I journal and make a to-do list. Uh, some of those days, you know, I might enjoy some greenery. Because uh, I know it's already going to be a stressful day, but I do it. Um, and I talk to myself and I express gratitude for making it through the day. And I might listen to Frank Ocean, but yeah, it helps me to organize my thoughts and organize mm-hmm. my day. And like, I don't fall off of the wagon if something doesn't 
go properly because mm-hmm. I also am like very anal like that as well. So it just helps me a lot. And talking about the chaos that exists in my mind with my not only my therapist, but some of my really close friends, I was able to be like, okay, I need to do this. Or like um, now my friends are like, oh, you're acting a little weird or stuff like that. But a lot of people depend on me. And so I had to figure it out. And I didn't figure it out overnight. It's, this has been years in the making. And sometimes I don't even do it. Uh, but I also learned to give myself grace in that sense. So during the pandemic, uh, I started working out with a trainer and she's really big. Before I could never like really work out or work with a trainer because they were like, oh, you got to do it. Just like that whole like very like authoritative stuff. I started working out with virtually um, with my trainer, Key. And she kind of, I always knew I needed to give myself grace, but she kind of um, validated that for me. So like, Mm -hmm. she's my trainer, but like, she would also talk about meals and like provide like what I should be eating to do the things that I do. She asked me about work. She asked me about school. She asked me about being a mom. And when some mornings when I'd be like, yo, I just can't do it today. It's okay. Stay in and sleep. I'll see you Thursday or whatever, things like that. And I was just like, or she did like, yo, if this is your goal and you haven't reached it in this time. It's not about getting there first. It's about longevity and actually making it there. And so she would, you know, hook me up in a way that was just like, she's kind of more than a trainer in that aspect. But she allowed me to understand that, like, in other aspects, aspects of my life, I also need to be a little less rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by working out at six or whatever time it was like okay well the first couple of the first half an hour I'm going to do all these things because I have to drink my water and get all these things done before I work out because I know once I get up and shower I got to bring my son to school and all the other stuff just starts happening um and so you know other black women have been my backbone and like the source of my inspiration in ways that I don't even think I could ever explain or show gratitude for Mm-hmm. Uh, the unspoken language of like understanding stuff like um, other women in general. Uh, so like my mentor, she is a professor, uh, amazing woman. Uh, she writes a lot about Mexican culture and she's writing a, a TV show now and she's just doing all these things. She's been with her partner for a really long time. She has a bunch of kids and like she always tells me and I don't ever have to tell her like that I'm struggling with like being a mom or like finishing an assignment. It's like she just knows and she'll send me like little notes and words of encouragement and like just the little things like that that matter. Like um, my um, friend Tamika, she just wrote a book um, and she's a mom. She has she's a mom of six. And I know that like um, there was an instance where Talib Kweli was like trying to bully me on Twitter and she hit me up and she was like, oh, I just spoke to this person for you. And she's like someone who knew him to tell him to leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, and she was the only, her and my other friend Shenda were the only people in that instance that were like, yo, y'all are bugging out. Where like all the men in my life DM me to be like, oh, just ignore it. And duh, 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 duh. they didn't take action. Like Shenda was on Twitter, like going back and forth with this man. And Tamika was like working behind the scenes, talking to the people to like, let, like, yo, this is not cool or whatever. And every, almost every man in my life was just DMing me like, oh, but it's funny though, or blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, in that instance where y'all saw a black man yelling at me because I asked him why he interacts with racists every day, because that can't be good for your mind. Just like mm-hmm. ignore from a place of concern, I guess he's had the conversation before and it bubbled into something else because he's so defensive that, that y'all didn't take that instance to tell him like, oh, he's bugging out. You guys DM'd me. Because why? 
because you didn't want to seem like you were going against, you know, a man or probably like one of your favorite rappers on the timeline to defend me. And those are the little, the little microaggressions that I think people don't see, but mm-hmm. like, you know, or my friend sending me flowers or, you know, my other friend, Crystal, the other day I was talking to her and she was like, you know, it's okay to choose yourself. And, and, and it's, it's that kind of stuff that like pushes me forward on top of the morning routine. Um, and also why I have the morning routine, because I take all of that stuff and I'm like, okay, um, I need to figure it out. Right. So shifting gears before we let you get out of here, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I think that's every day, really. But I think a specific example. So I worked somewhere where my blackness and my womanhood, I think, were a tool for someone else to be within the culture. And a lot of the stuff that was happening, I felt like was a detriment to the very people that I want to lift up every day. Um, And I was battling really badly with like, I need to leave this place. But then it also was like, I was kind of like in a bad mental space where I was like, but I need this job. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to work anywhere else. Like, these are the things that I, like, it was like I was in an abusive relationship almost. It was like, I talked myself down so much without realizing how much I was contributing to this place. Um, And I got pregnant, went through my whole pregnancy, like almost crying every day, feeling like, of of disservice and but I knew I couldn't quit because I had a you know I had to take care of this baby that was coming and then when I found out I was having a boy it kind of got worse because I was like I want him to value himself and how can I do that working here like you know what I'm Mm. saying I wasn't proud of it so I think I was like eight months I went to work one day uh things went sour like at nine o'clock or whatever it was and I just picked up put my coat on left and I never went back so you quit a job while eight months pregnant mm-hmm. and the the glory of that is that like I'm not super religious but I know things will work themselves out I'm not someone that feels like I'll always be in a down spot I guess that's probably a part of my depression too but maybe three weeks after that incident I started working at Ebony magazine mm. um, so like yeah like a week after that someone called me like hey I think you'd be perfect for this job blah 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 blah, blah. got hired and I started a job and I'm a nine months pregnant at Ebony Magazine and, you know, wow. full circle moment. But I would not have been there if in that day when I felt at the bottom of the bottom, I didn't decide to choose me and my child's well-being over, you know, having a job and paying bills. But it worked out for the better. And I think that's a good place to end on. That's a great, great story about trusting that when you do what's best for you, you will arrive at exactly where you need to be in that season. Yeah. And it wasn't easy in that moment, but I was truly extraordinary. Absolutely. So tell the people where they can find you online. Hi, you can find me online at uh, Raw Savvy on all platforms. So R-A-W-R-S-A-V-V-Y. And on there, you'll find all the links to like my Patreon, um, the links to the books that I've edited and Hopefully within the next few months, the books that I will be publishing. Ooh, nice. I'm looking forward to that for sure. So thank you for joining me on this beautiful Sunday morning to have this conversation. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this episode, if something has resonated with you, go ahead and follow Christina on all social platforms, support her Patreon, read her work. 
this is important work. We need to be educated. We need to be enlightened. It's important for our own, our own growth and progression as a community, particularly as a race and as a gender. Because yes, Black women, that intersectionality is, is not a game. So support the work that she's doing. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, comment, tell somebody about it, tell three people about it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.